This is The Analysis, a weekly examination of the culture in light of truth. I'm Deanna Huff. And I'm Mark DeMoss. Join us as we investigate and analyze the environment of the world where we live. We will be shedding the light of God's Word on the issues. And responding as Christians to influence followers of Jesus Christ to share the gospel with those around them. This week we're going to continue a discussion that we actually started last week. I thought that we would recap on the claims that Jesus was making because what we've been talking about is that it's Christmas time and everybody in the culture is singing and they're watching movies and they're just enjoying the fact that Christmas is here in December and we get time off and get to be with family. What's interesting though is that we sing these songs about this man named Jesus mm-hmm. and even if people are not believers, they find themselves in the car singing Away in a Manger or songs that are about the first Christmas, Noel, and all of these things. And what was this Christmas really about? It was really about this man that came into the world, but was he just a man? And we're proclaiming that this was more than a man. This was God in the flesh coming to dwell with his people, Emmanuel. And he had made some claims. He had made some claims while he was here on earth. He assumed authority to forgive all sin, and he claimed to give eternal life, and he claimed that he had power over death, and he claimed to have the truth. He, he claimed that he could judge the world and he received worship and all of these different things. And so as we've talked about these claims that he's made, As we're reading these things in light of the Old Testament, we can recognize that Jesus in Mark chapter 2 forgave sin, and the scribes understood that he was proclaiming that he was God in these in these descriptions, right? He's he's they're recognizing that. Mark 2:28 in the fact that he was proclaiming he was Lord of the Sabbath in Mark 4. Jesus commands the winds, and we noted that we can normally go to the book of John and talk about his deity, but we normally don't go to Mark. And today, what we want to do is we want to look at some of the objections that people might have in light of Jesus not being God. Some of those objections were John 14, 28, the Father is greater than I. Mark 1.35, Jesus prays to the Father. John 5.19, the Son can do nothing on His own. Mark 13.32, no one knows the hour except God. These are just a few that people would raise in, in proclaiming that Jesus is not God. Yeah. And where does that leave us? Well, one of the things that uh, I, I stop and, and think about any time you're going to deal with a, a biblical objection, you you come to a passage of Scripture. John fourteen twenty eight was one that you mentioned. Uh, the Father's greater than I, and so they go, "Oh, look right there! There's a contradiction." If you're going to say Jesus is God, Jesus Himself is saying these words: "The Father's greater than I," so they can't be the same person. Uh, so you have this objection, and so one of the one of the first things that you do with that is you go, okay. So I have this statement, but I've, I've got to look at all the evidence of all the scripture. I don't want to just go to this one statement and go, oh, that says that, and and so it must mean this. So you try to weigh it in light of everything else that's in the scripture, and some of the things that you've already pointed out, you've got scripture saying Jesus is proclaiming deity. He's making statements that express his deity. 
He's doing signs that express his deity. He allows himself to be worshipped, whereas angels wouldn't allow themselves to be worshipped. And so uh, those are making proclamations that he was letting the world know he was divine, that he was part of the Godhead. So what do you, you have these two apparent paradoxes, and then you've got to deal with that. But weigh all the scripture together is just the first starting point with dealing with the objection, right? Uh, see it together. And, and then you've got to put it in just the immediate context of what's going on in John 14 or what's going on with those other passages. And so from the whole scripture down to the specific context, and then is there some way he could be saying that that has a meaning other than this obvious, oh, well, he can't be God. He said, Father is greater than I. Yeah. You know, Nabel Koresh, he has passed away, but he was speaking once and said that, he was going to the text and he was looking for different scriptures to be able to defend his case that Jesus was not God because at the time he was Muslim. And he said that, you know, he would just look for things to be able to defend his case and miss the whole meaning of the text. And he said, but what he learned to do was that he said at some point he just finally recognized that I'm not really going to the text looking for the meaning of the context. I'm just pulling scriptures out. And so we really have to be able to to stop and think through what is the context? What is the message of the book actually trying to relate to the people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because in John 14, you have Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, so he, he's proclaiming he's the only way to heaven, forgiveness, and a relationship with the Father. You have Jesus saying, uh, really, a, a meat of John 14 is how Jesus is showing he is one with the Father. Like That's kind of the point of well, a lot of what he's saying in John 14. That if you've known me, you've known the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So how do you take that other than he's saying... I'm God in the flesh. Yeah. Uh, and yet it's in John 14, 28 that he says, the Father's greater than I. And people go, oh, see, there's, he can't be. And yet the heart of John 14 is to say, God and I are one. Mm-hmm. So don't miss the context. Yeah, exactly. And not only that, when, when we're thinking about Jesus, not only did he make these claims, and then you see evidence for his deity, and then you see these objections that people raise. We also have to recognize that his miracles were giving evidence to his deity, right? Right. Yeah, you you mentioned Mark's gospel earlier and just some of the things that take place in Mark's gospel that are evidence of his uh, deity. We we miss Mark's gospel sometimes in that. We mentioned that last time. We go to John for the deity of Jesus, and we go to some of the other Gospels for other aspects, Luke for his humanity and and Mark for kind of the speed of the context of tell me all the stories that happened. And Matthew more for kind of the references back to the old. How does this connect to the old? Uh, but all of them are giving us the same picture, maybe different angles, but all of them are proclaiming deity and humanity of Jesus because he is fully God and fully man. So in Mark's Gospel, it begins with him being the son of God. <laughs> which is really just a title. It's not saying he was begat by God. Son of God was a title, and it would have been a title that would have been understood in the cultural context. You bear you bear the image of the one who gives your, you your authority. 
So it, it was a title of authority. You're the son of God. You come bearing the authority of God. That's what that would have really been referencing and saying. And the Gospel of Mark just unfolds that uh, and, and begins immediately in Mark chapter 1, showing that he, where does the divinity show up early on? He has authority. He's the son of God. And in his teaching, he teaches as one who has authority. He's not relying on the rabbis, but he's speaking as if he's the very voice of God. Like these are his words, not, well, somebody once said. And that was the first sign of his deity right there in the Gospel of Mark. Yeah, and this is the place where we have to ask the question, who is this man? I mean, we cannot deny that he's doing these things. So if the Gospel accounts are reliable mm -hmm. and he's making these claims and the evidence of the miracle is there, then this time of celebration at Christmas is so much more than just getting together with family and friends. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I wanted to start the podcast today and say, let's talk about the most important man at Christmas, Santa Claus. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that's really like the, the world just drifts towards all of these things about Christmas that I cherish and I embrace. Big parts of my life and my childhood revolve around time with family and the giving of gifts and the sharing of meals and and thinking about the magic and mystery of Christmas and you know all of those things and, and those are so good and yet we don't want to allow that to hide this amazing fact that God took on flesh and had reason to do that not to make a story but because we were in a desperate need for something we're separated from God eternally. And unless He acted on our behalf, we would stay in that state. And that goes back to our previous podcast about this big meta-narrative story that you're, you're in the fallen state and God has to act on your behalf. This is how He began that, acting in the flesh. He came and took on flesh and began the earthly aspect of living out this plan to be able to be the God-man that can pay for our sins. Yeah, and there's a couple of ways that we have the opportunity that is just a natural fit in the culture to be able to share Christ during mm -hmm. this season. Yeah. And we're talking about the deity of Christ, and this is the very time that we can sit down and read the Christmas story with our family yeah. and not be looked at as peculiar for the most part. Right. And right. it's also the time that we could actually tell the story of St. Nicholas. I mean, who he was. I mean, yeah. he was someone who stood for Christianity in the fourth century. These are people that give us access to be able to share the gospel, the very gospel that gives light to the world, that gives hope. Restoration. I mean, we sing these songs, right? Glory yeah. to the world. Hope on on secular movies that I that I'm seeing, and they're in this background singing these mm -hmm. hallelujah songs. I mean, these are the times when you say, "What do you What do you think that that means? What do you think that 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 says about this man named Jesus and his yeah. coming?" Even Statistics even say that uh, a lot of people in America, you know, we see this drift towards secularism. But statistics show that a large percentage of Americans still believe the virgin birth is a true story. Like that's an accurate account of how this person named Jesus was born. Um, that shouldn't make any sense whatsoever. Like that yeah. should really shock us. Like people aren't born out of virgins. That doesn't, 
but people believe that to be accurate. And so even that is a, oh, you're singing that song about Jesus. Well, what do you think about the virgin birth? Or, you know, why do you think he was born in such a miraculous way? Like, what purpose does that have? And let them begin to dialogue and think about that. Because they don't necessarily translate believing in that into, I'm going to believe in him and follow him. Right. That's exactly right. And having the discussion and thinking about the objections that people would have toward Jesus being God in the flesh, there we can respond to those. Yeah. And we can point them to Scripture and say, look here, look at this uh, context and, and look at the message of Christ. And if He really is who He said He is, which the evidence points that way, the miracles the worship, but most of all, which you know we normally don't talk about until Easter, <laughs> most of all is the resurrection. Yeah, you know he claimed that he had power over death, yeah. and he was raised again, and over five hundred witnesses see him. In our court cases today, we say we only need two witnesses, right? Yeah. to attest a case. But when we start saying that there were 500 witnesses, all of a sudden people start going, oh, wait a second, maybe they were having hallucinations. And <laughs> yeah, you're going, yeah. that's more of a miracle than him raising from the dead. Uh, yeah, exactly. Okay, so, yeah. but just trying to consider looking at the evidence, who is this this man named Jesus at Christmas time? Yeah, what great point about thinking about his resurrection at this time. We, we tend to kind of just stop the whole story like he was born, and what a glorious miracle it is, and how great it is, and he came to bring peace on earth, and end of story. Um, and that's not the end of the story. Uh, we're thinking about Mark's gospel earlier. Already by the time you get to Mark chapter 5, I think is where it gives the account of him raising the widow's son, and he shows authority over death. I can raise the dead. And again, just pointing forward, helping the disciples see, helping his followers see, this is no ordinary man. Ordinary men aren't doing these things. They aren't performing these miracles. And death seems to be the one kind of point that's going to stop everyone. And yet he's showing that authority. Then his own resurrection uh, is is recorded for us in all the gospel accounts. And, and it was C.S. Lewis that just pointed out, if you take the, take the life of Jesus and what his claims are, he either had to be lying to us and know it. And he's perpetrated this fraud and chuckling under his breath at all these people who are following him. Or he's an absolute lunatic. He's, he believes what he's claimed, but there's no way it could be true. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's lost his mind, or he really is who he claimed to be. He is the Lord of all things and proved it with his resurrection. Yeah, that's exactly right. And one of the things that we are challenged by as well during this Christmas time is the fact that we have different holiday celebrations, right? And we have different religious ideas. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus seems to be among the many. Oh, yeah. And so how do we... How do we realize that he really is who he said he is? Okay, well, I can say I believe that he is who he said he is, but why can't I believe him and Buddha at the same time? Why can't I put them on the same shelf and mm -hmm. celebrate this idea of Christmas? I mean, yeah. these are the questions that we have in our culture, right? Yeah, yeah, because the, the, our, our culture's drifted towards uh, 
syncretism, uh, pluralism, and, and maybe hasn't drifted there. Maybe we've begun to reabsorb. Like, like that was the culture of Jesus. Yeah. Like he was living at a time that lots of different gods were worshipped. So it's not like all of a sudden we're doing that. Um, we really are kind of the fruit of revelation shows these kingdoms that that last kingdom just never really goes away. Like we're just the extension of the Greco-Roman world really. Uh, and so, uh, but we live in this time where there's all this pluralism and Jesus, so many people are welcome. You have Jesus, but don't tell me I can't have what I have. Uh, or that I can't include Jesus with other things. So I drive down my street to go home today. I'm going to drive by a house that's got their Christmas decorations out, which I'm always glad when people do something uh, because it's wintertime. And so it's nice to see the lights at night. But they're going to have their decoration, and they've got on one side, they've got a Santa Claus and a couple of inflatable things that are like snowmen or deer or whatever. And then on the other side of their yard and, and their door is a manger scene, right? Uh-huh. And in, in Bible Belt America, I can't say everywhere in America, but where we live, that's really common. Like almost any house you drive by with Christmas decorations will have this little hint toward Jesus being part of the story, but it's everything is okay. He's one among the many things that are important or treasured or worshipped. He's one among the gods. He's one among the valuables, however you want to think about that. A human, humanistic, secular mindset doesn't really even think about deities necessarily, but they're worshipping all the time. Yeah, yeah. and what, what the Scripture indicates is that He is God, right. and He is the only one to be worshipped. He's not one among many. He's the one who created all things. All things are held together by Him. And so at this time when we're thinking about all of those things, can we worship all these different things? I mean, it just takes us right back to Exodus 20, right? I have no other gods before me. He is the one who saves all all of these ideas. And so we really have to look back and think, Okay, let's lay out the evidence. If he really is God, if he really is God in the flesh, which he is, then can we have all these other things striving for our attention over him? And can we have, you know, these additional gods over or equal to him? And we can't. Right. And, And just learning to have that conversation with people that are struggling with spiritual life is important. And, and I try to be a good person, a spiritual person, uh, learning to have that conversation with them to, to just pull them back to ask the questions, why do you believe in what you believe in? And where do you place Jesus? And what do you think about Jesus? And these are his clear claims. And so if those are his clear claims, what do you think about? How, do you, how should you treat him? Does he get to stand with your other gods or should you forsake all other things to follow him and just learning to have that conversation and use times like Christmas to engage those conversations I I think is what we're just trying to encourage and push forward for people yeah absolutely and at Christmas time it's no better time than to talk about Jesus God in the flesh came to dwell with his people he desires to have a relationship with them that we might repent follow him and that one day at the end of this life when he returns that we might be with him in eternity right where there's no more suffering no more pain this is the hope 
that Jesus is bringing at Christmas. It's a good word to end on. Look forward to talking.